off in their car. On his way back in, he noticed Declan Greenwood coming in the main door, wearing a floor-length coat, army surplus, with what appeared to be several bullet holes down one side. Anyone else's money would have been refused straight away, but Declan was Marion's boy, so Johnny made an exception. He nodded his head in the direction of the cloakrooms, and Declan grinned and nodded, and slid the offending coat off his lean shoulders. Johnny would always allow the young fool admittance to his precious ballroom, because Declan's mother looked like Marilyn Monroe, and because Johnny had loved her for twenty-five years. The lad will never get a girlfriend, though, dressed like that, Johnny thought sadly, as he picked a speck of dust off his own white jacket and checked his hair in one of the many gilt mirrors. Johnny Hogan was a tall, powerful man with thick black hair and dark brown eyes. He was handsome and sensual, and he could carry a tune and jive with the best of them. He had a dimple on his chin, and when he winked, girls forgot they had boyfriends. All the women of Belfast adored Johnny Hogan. But so far, Johnny had managed to remain single. The only woman he had ever loved had left him to marry another man, and Johnny had never recovered from the shock. He was born in 1939 into a close family circle with conservative values. His parents were well-liked in the district, and the birth was celebrated for several days. All the women in the street knitted clothes for him. It was the beginning of a lifetime of female devotion. It took people's minds off the outbreak of war to fuss over such a handsome little fellow. Meanwhile, people hung blackout blinds on the windows and began to panic by cigarettes, stockings, and chocolate. The young men were enlisting in the army and talking about the amazing capabilities of battleships and submarines. And the women only wanted to see the new baby on Magnolia Street. They all congratulated Johnny's mother on having the good fortune to have her baby before her man got sent away to fight. Everyone spoiled Johnny because he was a good baby and almost never cried. He lay in the sturdy wooden cradle that his grandfather had made for him, and he smiled up at everyone, and they smiled down at him. But the Hogan family was destined to become one of the countless casualties of that conflict. Johnny was only a year old when Magnolia Street was flattened in the Blitz, and his devoted parents were found side by side in the rubble. They hadn't had time to gather up their baby son and make their way to the shelter that James had built for them with such devotion. Johnny's mother was clutching a bone-china teapot, and his father was wearing his stiff, new soldier's uniform. They were both dead. But Johnny was alive and well in his solid wooden cradle, and his survival made the national press. He was the only person on Magnolia Street to survive the bombing. Johnny moved to Eglantine Avenue, where he was brought up by his paternal grandparents, Eileen and James, and he was a happy and contented child. He never had a chance to get to know his parents, so he did not miss them very much but he sometimes felt a kind of emptiness in his heart, especially at Christmas time. His grandparents understood this, and they were the most patient and considerate guardians that Johnny could have wished for, and they were only in their forties anyway, 
so it was not like he was being brought up by elderly people. They did not put him under pressure of any kind. They let him have his friends round to tea and allowed him to run up and down the stairs and make as much noise as he liked. They bought him a bicycle and gave him endless money to spend on ice cream. From time to time the local press turned up on his doorstep to see how he was getting on, and Johnny was secretly pleased with the articles and kept them all in a scrapbook. When the movie theatres brought American culture to Ireland in the 1950s, Johnny got down on both knees and worshipped it with every last drop of energy in his glamour-starved little soul. He loved it all. The chain-smoking cowboys shooting up the town, the fierce, long-haired Indians who could ride wild horses and shoot deadly arrows at the same time, the ice-cool matinee idols who wore impeccable double-breasted suits and held gorgeous, swooning dames in their big, strong arms. His grandmother was not so romantic. Land of opportunity, my foot, she would say. For every winner in America, there's a hundred poor creatures that never saw an easy dollar. My two uncles worked on the railroads for forty years and died penniless in a boarding house in Chicago. But Johnny didn't believe her. How could two men work hard for forty years and still die penniless? They must have been drunk or gambled all their wages, he decided. Or maybe they were robbed. The world seemed full of criminals to Johnny. Look at Florida, he would say. Look at the scenery, the beaches, the trees, the sun, the waves, the lovely climate. Now, Johnny, get a hold of yourself. Water is water and sand is sand wherever you are. We had plenty of nice picnics in Newcastle when you were a nipper. We had to keep our coats on, on the beach. Not all the time, Johnny. Oh, Grandma, most of the time we did. Weren't you lucky you had a coat to wear? Yes, Grandma, I was. And I was lucky to have you too. And they would smile at each other. Johnny grew up fast. He was the first young person in Belfast to wear blue suede shoes, a boast he never tired of making. In another time and place he might have become an actor in the theatre or a singer like Elvis Presley. He had a certain quality about him, an aura of celebrity that made people look after him in the street and wonder if he was famous. Even as a child people knew that he would amount to something. The miracle boy from Magnolia Street could never be allowed to fade away into obscurity, like so many other Belfast boys before him. From the age of fourteen he never missed a Saturday at the Odeon Picture House on the Ormo Road, and the cinema staff soon began to call him Hollywood Hogan. The name stuck, and Johnny kept it, even when he was grown up, on account of his big ideas and his outlandish dress style. He combed his jet-black hair up into a steep wave, and he wore tight trousers and long jackets long after they ceased to be fashionable. He cut a fine figure driving down the rain-washed streets in his imported pale-blue Lincoln Continental. And so, buoyed up by his local celebrity status and by his own vague ambitions, Johnny set out to find a purpose in life. Various jobs came and went. Salesman, office clerk, barman. He was very frustrated, 
watching the minutes crawl by in old-fashioned shops and offices, and far too spoiled to labor on the building sites. And he longed for something glamorous, a little bit of Hollywood sparkle. That's what he really wanted. When he was twenty-three, Johnny fell in love. He saw a pretty girl one sunny day on Royal Avenue in 1962 as he waited for the lights to change. She had white blonde hair and bright red lips, and Johnny waved her over to his car and asked her for her name and telephone number. She scribbled it down on the back of an old bus ticket and gave it to him, and he missed the green light and the other drivers beeped their horns at him. Johnny didn't care. Marion Evans was worth it. Johnny called her the following day. They went out on several dates, mostly to the cinema, and fell madly in love in the back row of the Odeon. Marion had a tiny waist and a rounded bust, and as the months went by she allowed Johnny to do things with her that she had never allowed other boys to do. Not even her teenage sweetheart, Eddie Greenwood. She worried about it afterward, of course, but she was sure that Johnny was working up the courage to propose to her. He kept saying things about having big plans for the future. Johnny had lots of plans. He once set up a business importing salad dressings and pickles from California, but the people of Belfast were happy enough with salad cream and salt, and the entire enterprise was a flop. He opened a bowling alley in the city centre, but it attracted a rough crowd and the city council closed him down the first chance they got. He thought again of emigrating to the United States to live among modern people like himself, but his grandmother was against the idea. To Eileen, America meant only one thing, a faded black-and-white photograph of her two lost uncles.